For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. All right, kids ages 3 to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you... That's precarious. The rest of you, if you'd uh, go ahead and open a Bible, if you have one with you. We're in the book of Galatians this morning. That's in the New Testament, one of the letters of Paul. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about it. Uh, the passage is in your order of worship. We put it there every week just to make sure that you can have it with you and if you forgot your Bible. If you don't own a Bible or the, last, the Bible that you do own is like grandpappy's and you literally can't understand three words that are in it, uh, because since Shakespeare stopped writing, they stopped using that kind of English. Uh, we've got a bunch on the back table that we would love to give to you. That's our gift to you. Go ahead and grab one either uh, right now, if you'd like to, or on your way out. Either way, take one. Um, if you're a member or regular attender, I forgot to mention this before, there are these little envelopes on the back table. Um, actually, I think it's just for members. But um, our quarterly informational meeting is coming up, and you guys know that about 30 days out of that, we sent... we. We put these out so that you know what's coming up, so you can actually think about it before we get there, so we're not dropping stuff on you. You can pick one of those up in the back. Um, if not, we're going to have to send it, so it's just to help save stamps. Anyway, hey, uh, as you're turning to Galatians 4, let me remind us what we're doing. Like I said earlier, last week we kicked off our fall series on the Apostles' Creed, where we're taking each little af- affirmation in the Creed, we're breaking it down into biblical passages that inform it, right? And one of the things that I said was that if you grew up in liturgical traditions, and I say that we're going to preach through the creed, you were like, yes, I'm home. And if you were like, grew up in not liturgical traditions, or you didn't grow up in church at all, you're like, what the heck is that? Like, that's, is that in the Bible? Um, and if not, like, why are you even talking about it? So uh, just stay with me, because I'm, I'm hoping that this will help give us some appreciation for the, the Apostles' Creed as a whole, Right? Last week we dealt with the first statement of that, the I believe, the fact that the, the ground of the Christian faith, the very core of it, is founded not on just belief in propositions, but in trust in a person. Uh, and this week, we take that first statement from the creed that it, we, are, we have belief in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What is it about Christianity's belief about God that sets it apart? What is it that makes it kind of Unique. Why is this phrase, why did they decide to put this phrase in this creed that's been used, like I said, for about 1,800 years? What we're going to see is not necessarily a unique understanding of what God can do, but how we're supposed to relate to him. Okay? If you have your place in Galatians 4, our habit here is to stand um, as the scripture is read. So if you stand in honor of God's word, I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 7 in Galatians chapter 4. As I do that, let me just remind us that this is God's word. This is not something that we picked, the church picked, that Holy Cross picked, that I picked. Uh, this is, this is a, a word that lays claim on us because it is living and active and God actually speaks to us in it. So hear it in that way. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. 
though he's the owner of everything. But he's under a guardian and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come into this place with lots on our hearts. Uh, Some of us woke this morning to find out more stories of tragedy and of terror um, in our country, and we're scared. Uh, Some of us are bored. Some of us are waiting for her uh, already for me to stop talking. (laughs) And so, Lord, I pray you'd meet us where we are, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open them to, to be able to receive you. You would open our eyes to see you and our ears to hear from you this morning. God, your word is living and active. And so I pray that you would, through the preaching of your word, create new life in this place for those of us who have never had it before. And that you would take those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time and restore us to the gospel so that we might um, live out the freedom of the children of God day to day. We pray and ask for you, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, to make this time into something that will glorify you and flourish us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Now, self-awareness being what it is, it's always good to have an understanding of who you are and who you're around. Because of the climate in our culture and because we are... Like I said, self-aware, we would understand ourselves to be a conservative, evangelical, reformed congregation. If you don't know what those words mean, that's fine, okay? But for some of you, you do know what those words mean. And because we would identify ourselves as conservative, evangelical, and reformed, that means that as I talk about the fact that we're going to be looking at God, the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, that many of us in this room assume that what we're going to be doing is looking at maybe Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, look at the fact, or maybe Psalm 8, if you're aware of the Bible a little more, something else that deals with the fact that God created things. But here's my guess. Here's just a guess. My guess is that no matter where you're at with Jesus this morning, Christian, non-Christian, uh, and, and if you're not a Christian here, great. I, I'm glad you're here. We want you to be here. Okay. So if, if no matter where you're at with Jesus this morning, my guess is that if you do believe in God, or even if you believe that there's a possibility of a God, uh, we don't, you probably don't struggle with the idea of God creating everything. Now, what I didn't say is you don't have different opinions on how he created everything, right? There's probably a multitude of those in this room. But the fact that he did create everything is probably not a struggle because you think that if there is a God, that's probably what he can do. He can do stuff. He can create things. It's kind of what he does, right? That is because most theistic faiths, most faiths that posit a God would say that if there is a God, he, he creates, he can do stuff like that. What they don't say is that you can have a special, unique relationship with this God, with this deity, in which you can intimately call him dad. Christianity, though, is adamant about this. It's adamant. It's like everywhere that, that in fact, uh, Jesus himself told us to call God Father when he taught us to pray. And running to your father when you're upset is a good thing. 
Now, here's the kicker of this, and it's what can upset some of us. The ability to call God Father is not something that is given, according to Christianity, to all and sundry. God's fatherhood is not universal. It's unique. It's exclusive. And it's given specifically to Christians. Why? Well, that's what we're looking at this morning. So if, you haven't, if, if you've got your bulletins out and you like to take notes or follow along so they can help you keep track, there's an outline in there that, that might help you. We're going to look in three ways at this text. We're going to look at becoming a child, we're going to look at the benefits of a child, and then we're going to look at believing you're a child. Okay? And what we're going to see is this. Well, what we'll see is this. That God, because of his compassion for us, meets us as slaves. He meets us as slaves, but he makes us as children. That God, because of his compassion for us, meets us as slaves, but makes us his children. All right, so let's look at this passage. Now, this, this uh, passage we read, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, um, it occurs in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatia was a, a, a region in which Paul planted a lot of churches. And Paul wrote, I don't know if you're familiar with Paul, he wrote almost half of the New Testament, wrote like 13 letters, it's a lot. But he didn't begin as a champion for Jesus. In fact, Paul was... Uh, kind of in his, in his early days and when we first meet him in the Bible, he was a, a violent, racist persecutor of the church. He hated Christians, especially if they looked like all of us. Right? If, they, if they weren't Jewish at all, he hated them uh, and, and hated even the ones that were Jewish. But he became a powerful missionary for Jesus. He went from persecutor to missionary because he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And his life changed forever. And what he's doing in this passage and in this letter in in total is he's writing about the differences. Ultimately, what he's talking about is the difference between a religious life and a Christian one. Now, that may not make sense to you because you're like, wait a minute, isn't Christianity a religion? And so wouldn't the Christian life be the religious life? Not exactly. Okay, follow me because that has a lot to do with what we're talking about here. What I mean by the difference between a religious life and a Christian one is that he talks about being enslaved, being in bondage versus the freedom of a child of God. So let's look at the time, at, at first at the time of bondage. Look down at verse 3 in particular. He says this, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, uh, zoom out for a second, because what Paul's doing here is he's talking in two ways at the same time. He, oh, that, that happens a lot in the Bible. In one way, he's talking about historical epics, great kind of periods of history within God's story in which there was a time in which the world was enslaved, now in the freedom of the children of God. But at the same time, he's talking personally. And this is, this is the case all the time in the New Testament. Because part of the, the truth of the New Testament is that God is calling individuals into his story to be part of his story of redemption. And so in the, in the more personal way, he's speaking of how things were before, if you're a Christian, you encountered Jesus. And he describes this as bondage, slavery, the elementary principles of the world. Now, there's a ton of literature on exactly what Paul means by this, but most scholars agree that what he's talking about is being in bondage to fundamental principles, okay? A kind of religious regimen that relates to our reality. I'm sure that clears everything up. Uh, Now, let me speak a little clearer. Paul is talking about the fact that apart from Jesus, we are in bondage to whatever it is we believe will give us life. Whatever we believe will bring us life, that we serve, okay? Now, let me explain that. The Bible teaches that you and I do not have life in and of ourselves, that, that we are dependent creatures. 
And we know this, even though we don't want to admit it. We look outside of ourselves all the time for things to make the world right for us, to make us right, to make us live, to give us life. Some of us do that with, with like uh, money. Like Peter was talking about before we did our offertory, that we think that our stuff gives us life, that our stuff can save us, that our stuff can make us someone. Some of us don't do that with money, but we do it with sex. We do it with power or approval or love. Or maybe even it's some kind of understanding of there is some deity that if I work hard enough, he's going to give me what I really want. Now, the Bible also teaches that the reason that we do this, the reason that we feverishly do this, it's not just a little thing, it's, it's a feverish pursuit of this, is because we were made to be dependent. We were made to be dependent not on these things, but on God. But because of our sin, we are committed to depending on anything but him. Okay, with me? Now, some of us are thinking right now, like, I'm not a slave. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, Rick. Like, I, I ain't a slave. What do you mean? Well, that's a great question. It means this. Whatever you believe is going to give you life, make you somebody, give you value, make the world right for you, you are enslaved to. Whatever you that believe will do that, you serve. You see, if you think your life will matter, if your life will be worth living, if you have enough money then you will constantly be in pursuit of more. You will constantly be chasing more money. You will do whatever you can to get enough. If you think acceptance by others or the approval of others will do it, you will bend over backwards. Oftentimes what you'll do is end up uh, destroying yourself so that you can make others approve of you. You'll morph who you are depending on the group that you're in. You'll become something for someone else. You will tirelessly serve it. If you think power is what does it, then power becomes your master. Because you see, the constant question in all of this is how much is enough? How much money is enough? How much needs to be in your 401k? And if you don't know what that is, how much needs to be in your wallet or under your mattress? Like, how much is enough before you say, I'm arrived? I've made it. How much approval is enough? How much power before you're safe, before you finally matter? See, the great lie is that these things can provide what we want, but they can't. And so we are endlessly in bondage to them. It's like feverishly trying to fill a bucket that's got huge holes in it. And you can keep pouring it in, and it never fills because it's constantly emptying. We never get what we need from them, but we never consider. We ne- it never crosses our mind that the reason we can't get what we need from them is that they can't actually deliver on the promise we think, I'm just, I'm not working hard enough. I'm not getting enough. I'm not doing what I need to do. Never crosses our mind that they can't deliver. And that's where the Bible says we are by nature. We're stuck looking to things that can't deliver for us. Serving them so that they will come through on something they can't. But God doesn't leave us there. He gives us an agent of redemption. Look down at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born, under, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Okay, now stop there. Into this reality that I just talked about, all of us in bondage, by nature, not by nurture, but by nature, it's not an American thing, it's, not a, it's a human thing, into all of this Jesus comes. That phrase, fullness of time, is a loaded one. We could talk for hours on that um, in the Bible, but for our purposes, it really just means when the time was right, When the time was right, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law. And we don't have time to get into all that that Paul is saying there. The core of what Paul is trying to highlight is the fact that God the Son took humanity to himself 
and put himself in our shoes. Right? Don't miss the image here. God looked on who we were as slaves. Slaves by our own doing. That's a hard one for us. Uh, let, me, let me try and put this in another way. Most uh, modern slavery today, especially in, in parts of the developing world, say like in India, right? Uh, Inter- International Justice Mission goes over and, and works to re- release slaves in India. The primary way that people are enslaved in India is not by kidnapping or some other form. It's because they take a loan out. They take a loan out by someone who says, that's fine, you can have that, but you have to work this long for me because you, you now owe this much interest on the loan. And so because of that, they, that they're, what they do, the wages they earn, can never actually repay even the interest that they're owing. And so they become slaves by their own doing. Is it an unjust system? Absolutely. Are they forced into it? Yes. But it's the same with us. We are slaves by our own doing. Our slavery is because we betrayed God. And then, seeing us in the slavery that we created, God sent his son. Why? It's his compassion on us. And this blows our expectations, especially if we come from a more religious background. Because if you come from a more religious background, what you're expecting is that you you tend to view God as consistently angry. Right? That he's constantly kind of angry and begrudgingly offering some form of pardon for you if you work hard enough. But here's God in this passage looking down on us in our slavery, having compassion on us, even though it's a self-made problem, and coming to rescue us. He is grieved for us. And then Paul says that God did this to redeem those who were under the law. That word redeem is important because that word redemption in the Bible, in the world of the New Testament, is slavery language. That is how you rescue slaves. You redeem them, meaning you purchase them to set them free. To redeem a slave is to purchase their freedom. And that Paul's argument is that all of humanity is enslaved under the standard of God's law. If you're not familiar with that, God's law, maybe you're familiar with the top ten, right? The Ten Commandments. Uh, Maybe you're not even familiar with those. Maybe a couple of them. But here's the way it's all summarized. The the law is summarized as this. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, all of your being devoted to Him. Loving Him. Not seeking your uh, glory, but seeking His. And then you've got to love your neighbor as you would yourself. It's completely outward focused. This is what we are supposed to do, but we don't. And instead, we serve these elementary principles, these other things. But Jesus came to redeem us. That's what the cross is about. You see, Paul's going to say, and he said earlier in this very book, that the Son, God the Son, became a servant. He became a slave to redeem those who by nature were slaves. He lived perfectly. And then he died to bear the judgment for those who weren't perfectly loving God. Jesus came to do for us what we couldn't do. And so when we place our faith in him, we are redeemed. That sounds great, right? That sounds great. We're redeemed. Fantastic. Keep reading because it gets better. He says that we're redeemed so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now let me give you three things about this. First, when you see the word so that, you need to understand that that is a purpose. He's giving you the purpose of what he just said. You were redeemed for the purpose of becoming 
children of God. Redemption's purpose is adoption into God's family. I'm not saying it's the only purpose, but it's it's one of the main ones, okay? That's first and foremost. Our redemption is to bring us into a family. Second, Jesus did this so that we might receive something. That word receive is so important. Because receiving is not something we actively do. Unless you're Antonio Brown torching my Redskins last week. But let's hope that we can all forget that. It's not something that you, you, uh, you actively do. You simply open your hands to receive. Okay? We'll get more to that in a second. Last, adoption is specifically as sons. Now, that seems really sexist. So let me explain. <laughs> let me explain. In the ancient world, the eldest son gets the inheritance. And we may not like that. I know that most of us are like, that seems really unjust. That's the world that Paul is speaking into. And so when he uses the metaphor that we have been ad- adopted as sons, he doesn't just mean some kind of generic adoption, though that is also true, but brought into God's family, men and women, as the ones who will receive the inheritance. You're not brought in as the proverbial stepchild who, who in Cinderella's world is there to clean the fireplace to wash the dishes you were brought into the family of God to receive the inheritance of God this is what Jesus came to do he became like us so that by faith we might have his place now that's what it means to become a child now let's look at the benefits all right look down at verse six. First, there's this new relation Paul says because you are sons God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba Father. Now, if you're new to Christianity, let me explain this. The Bible teaches that when you place your faith in Jesus, when you become a Christian, and that's how you become a Christian, you place your faith fully on Christ, that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in the core of our being. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It's talking about the Spirit coming to live in us. But specifically, Paul is showing that the Spirit seals a new relation to God for us because the Spirit cries, Abba. Now, that's an that's a Aramaic word. That's a word that comes specifically from Aramaic. There's not a ton of Aramaic in the New Testament, in the Bible as a whole. Um, Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke. As a matter of fact, most of the Aramaic in the New Testament is the use of this word. It's important enough that they feel like they don't want to translate it. They just give it to us. The only other time that the word occurs in the New Testament is when Jesus is suffering. In Mark 14, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he's spent his last evening having a meal with his best friends. Um, one of them, he, and under his knowledge, has left to go betray him, to kind of uh, sell him out. Okay, And so he goes into a garden to pray. Um, and he's praying to God the Father. And as he's praying to him... Uh, struggling with what is about to come because he fully knows what is about to come. He cries out to God as Abba. Now here's why this matters. As far as we know, and there's an awful lot of literature on this, no other Jew at the time used this address to speak about God. None. It was completely unique. Because to such a thing, to claim Abba was what you would call your dad. A lot of people say it means daddy. It can mean that, 
uh, so long as you're like in Georgia or south there in where, where like grown men call their father daddy. But like it's, a, it's, a, it's still, it means pops. It's dad. It means the time which it's a grown person speaking in an intimate way to their father. The point is that it is an intimate address and is unique to Jesus. So when the Spirit comes into our lives, when the Spirit invades our hearts and unites us to Jesus, He does so such that the relationship that Jesus had with the Father becomes the relationship that we have with the Father. The intimacy that Jesus experienced with God is the intimacy that we can experience with God. Think about that. Because Paul could have used a million other words for father in this passage. He could have used a bunch. As a matter of fact, he uses one right after, wouldn't Right after that, he says Abba, and then we have father. It's the Greek word for father. Like he could have just said father, but he chose this word. He chose the word that Jesus' earliest followers had heard him use of God. That is what Jesus means when he tells us to pray to the father. It isn't to a formal figure. It's to our dad. We aren't brought into a relationship of servitude. We are brought into a relationship of intimacy and love. So a new relation is the first benefit. The second is a new destiny. Look at verse 7. Paul says, So you're no longer a slave, but sons, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is why Paul constantly says son and not child. Okay, I gave you a highlight of that, but, but I need to say it again. Paul is not a misogynist. I know if you took a college Bible class, you were taught that. Okay? I took a bunch of them. I was taught that too. Uh, but you have to understand the world into which Paul is talking. When he says that you are, you are brought in as a son, he knows that he is addressing a church. Not a bunch of dudes. He's addressing a church. Men and women. And when he says sons, it has to do with that idea of being an heir. You see, Jesus is the unique Son of God, Son of God from all eternity. But because of Jesus' perfect and finished work, when we place our faith in Him, the Spirit unites us with Him. Okay? Stay with me, because this gets a little, it's a little technical, but we need to hear this. this. We are united to Jesus. This is why if you've read the Bible a bunch, you see all this in Christ language. Like it, just read the first chapter of Ephesians. It occurs like 18 million times in that chapter. Everything is in Christ, because we are united with Him. Jesus' inheritance is the world. Right? He is placed as king over the world. That is the inheritance all of us have. Because of our adoption, not as children, though yes, but as sons. Paul is using a metaphor so that we understand clearly we are brought in to be heirs of God. We are all equally heirs of all that God has made. Men and women receive the inheritance of a son because of the work of Jesus. And this would have been insane in the first century in Rome. Like, this is why Paul is in a massage. He's like the exact opposite. But here's the kicker. In other places, when he talks about the Spirit, he talks about the Holy Spirit being given to Christians as the down payment of our inheritance. It's like there's more. It's like the world, yes. But then there's the Spirit who's a down payment of our inheritance. Now, most of us in this room, um, if you're over the age of 18, have probably bought something in which you had to put a down payment on, right? Now, here's the thing about that. When you put a down payment on something, that is a promise 
to give more of what you've already given. In other words, when you put a, a down payment on a car, you don't then, and it, it, let's say the car's, uh, I don't know, $30,000 automobile, okay? And you put, I don't know, two grand down on it. You're not promising then to pay back, what's more, 22,000 pencils, 22,000 rocks, but 22,000 more dollars, 28,000 more dollars. Math teacher's going, sorry, dude, my degree's in divinity, okay? So, um, so what, what this means is if the Holy Spirit is a down payment on our inheritance, that the inheritance that we will receive is the fullness of God himself. The fullness of God himself. I don't think you're getting that. The point of our redemption is not to be forgiven. That is a part of it. It is nothing less than that. But if we stop there, we've missed it. The point... If the point were just forgiveness, that would be good, because we're all guilty and we get that. We just struggle with that in different ways. But that would be great. But it isn't all of it. The point is being an intimate relationship with God, because our sin has alienated us from Him. The goal is not to be forgiven but distant... And that's what we can get when we harp on the courtroom language that is very common in Scripture. That, that, that God is like a judge and he offers us forgiveness. That's great. And if you get acquitted of a crime, you walk away from the courtroom going, yes, and you never see the judge again and you're fine with that. The goal isn't just forgiveness. The goal is nearness. It is warmth. It is love. It is intimacy. It is relationship with God. God's compassion for us in our bondage, our self-made bondage, moved us, moved him to redeem us, not just to make us forgiven, but fellow heirs, not servants, but sons, not workers, but loved ones. Okay? Now that's great. That's awesome. But my guess is I doubt that maybe a couple of us in this room, if that are actually living into that reality, even if everyone in this room were Christian. Listen, if I'm being honest with you, this is where I struggle the most. I mean, I'm fine with being forgiven. I'm fine with being acquitted, but adopted? That's a whole other thing. So let's look at believing this, believing that you're a child, first with a gracious state most of us in this room, like I just said, Christian or not, live like slaves. Now, I don't mean any offense to that, so please don't check out. Just stay with me. Remember what I said. We all depend on something. All of us. That thing that we look to, we are enslaved to. Some of us really do believe that we will only be okay if we can finally bring control to our world. We can finally know that we've wrapped our hands around it and that everything is more or less under our little semblance of safety. Some of us really believe that we're only going to be okay if, our, if we have enough in our savings account to take care of us, or if we have enough respect in our neighborhood, or if we achieve enough in our profession, or if we have kids that have achieved enough more than we could. Now, here's the thing none of those things are bad. They're not bad. They're good. But they can't be God. They're all good. So here's my question for you. How much is enough? 
I may have not have named what it is that, that, that it is for you. So just think on it for a second. Is it respect? Is it, is it love? Is it affection? Is it being able to wake up one day and know that there's someone next to you who will always love you? And when they fail you, is it enough that you've birthed someone or, uh, or fathered someone that you know will always love you? It, is, it, is, it, um, is it being able to do whatever you want whenever you want with perfect freedom? How much is enough? When will you know you're safe? When will you know you've arrived? When will you know you've achieved enough? Because that's a lie, you see. Because if you have to work to get it, you can't ever stop working or you'll lose it. If you have to work to get it, you never stop or you'll lose it. You're in bondage. But look at what God has done. We receive. We are redeemed. We don't redeem ourselves. We are redeemed. It's not something we work for. It's something we're given. And if it's something that we're given, then we don't, since we didn't have to work to get it, we don't have to work to keep it. You and I were made to depend on God, to look to him for our life, our worth, our value, all of those things that we all tirelessly work for. Listen, I am no different than you. You think I can stand up here week after week after week and not want everyone who hears me to think everything I do is art? And thank you for laughing because that feeds it. Right? But God, through the finished work of Jesus, freely offers the life we slave for but can never get. Listen, don't miss this. God sent his son to make you his child. All of these promises are stored up in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you want those benefits and not Jesus, I am sorry. They are stored up in him. But all you need to do is cling to him. Because some of us right now are hearing this as if we hear God saying, Stop being a slave. Would you start being a son? That's not the God of the Bible. I wouldn't serve him and you shouldn't either. It is in compassion that God looks on us in, his, in our bondage. He isn't asking you to make yourself his child. He's just saying, trust me, and I'll do it. I've got this. Lastly, we have a secure status. Like I said a second ago, this is a, this is a gift. And if it's a gift, then it's something that we depend on God for. And he delivers on his promise. And, and, and if, if we depend on him and he delivers on his promise, then it's not something that we can lose. And the, this reality of being God's secure child, secure son or daughter, emboldens us for at least three things I want to highlight. Okay, First and foremost, listen to me close. And if you're visiting here with us this morning, this is your first time in a Christian church for a while. I need you to hear this more than anything else. The secure love of God for us in Jesus should embolden us to tell the truth about ourselves. Since God's acceptance and love for us isn't based on our performance, we do not have to pretend that we are awesome. You're not. And neither am I. We're not awesome. We're broken. Stop pretending. God didn't love you in the first place because you did great things for him. He loved you in your self-made bondage. He loved you in, the, in, the, in your worst place. You were in a problem that you made and you couldn't get out of. And he said, I love you. And I'm sending my son to purchase you out of that. And if, he didn't, if it was in that place that he loved you in the first, don't buy into the lie 
that once you're out of that, then you have to somehow keep something up? Or that this group of people needs to have some kind of uh, face put on so that they can accept you? Are you kidding? If you're in this place, if you're at Holy Cross, member, regular tenor, first-time visitor, this of all places is a place where you do not have to throw the mask on. I'm a mess, and so are you, and it's okay, because Jesus loves his messes. Okay? God's love for you and Jesus is completely free. So it emboldens us to tell the truth about ourselves. Second, it emboldens us to pursue holiness. Now, that sounds counterintuitive because of what I just said, but, but follow me here. If your acceptance isn't based on your performance, then you can pursue becoming more like the Father who loved you without any fear of failure. You're going to blow it. You're going to blow it. And so am I. We're going to blow it. Lord willing, we'll blow it, not in the same way we did last time, but probably. And we're going to blow it maybe in a less worse way than last time, but maybe not. But we can pursue becoming like him. When someone loves you at your worst with such a powerful love like this, you want to be like them. Look, with God, there's no fear of failure. Because God loved us when we could have cared less about him. Your failure doesn't affect that. So it emboldens you to tell the truth. It emboldens you to pursue holiness. Lastly, it emboldens you to love. Do you know what it is that makes us stingy in our care for others? What makes us stingy in our care for others is when we have believed the lie that we are loved because we are worthy. Or worse, we believe the lie that because we aren't worthy, we can't be loved. This is why we are so big at this church, why one of the three lanes that we have missionally in the city is adoption and fostering. Because adopting a child, fostering a child, they don't love you when they first come into your home, do they? Some of you have done this. They they don't. Of course they don't. They don't even know you. And you love them. And they grow to love you because of the outrageous love that you've shown them. That's... That's the love of God. That's the reflection of the love of God. And we can be free to love and offer ourselves to others because God has already given us in himself all the love and service we will ever need. We don't need to get anything from others because Jesus has given us everything. Listen, friends, Christianity is not just about forgiveness. It's about a family. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about a family. God in his compassion for us meets us in our slavery and makes us children. But don't miss that first part. If you're here this morning and you're stuck and you're like, I've just been stuck in the same thing and maybe it's gotten a little better, but I'm still stuck. I can't leave it behind. God is not surprised. He's not surprised by the bondage that you live under. He grieves for you. Come to Jesus. Be reconciled. Or if you've come to Jesus already, You don't have to slave anymore. You don't have to slave. He's redeemed you. Have the courage to live as his child. Let me pray for us. Jesus, even saying that, I know that we can't even produce that. (laughs) I can't even produce the courage in myself to live as your child. And so we need the Holy Spirit to come and to embolden us to such things. To embolden us to tell the truth about ourselves. To embolden us... Uh, to to pursue holiness, to embolden us to love others. But Lord, that can never happen unless first and foremost we 
have trusted, grasped Jesus. And so, Lord, for my friends here who haven't done that yet, who've never come to a saving knowledge of Christ, who've never placed their faith fully on Jesus, I pray that you would help them this morning to do that. That you would work in us to be in that place. For those of us who have, but Lord, we are stuck in our bondage. No matter what that bondage is, I pray that you would give us an experience of your love that sends us into the joy and freedom of the children of God. We need you. And now, Lord, as we respond both in confession and in celebration at the table and in song, I pray that you would receive it as a, as a father joyful at the gifts of his children, giving back to him everything he has given. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.